the point of Think Different was uh, Steve had come back to Apple, and because he was Steve, um, and there was that kind of uh, you know celebrity quality about him coming back to Apple, and and Apple has been hurting for so long, and you know can he save the company? So with all the world's attention on him and Apple, what are we going to do? Because we have no new products to talk about. So we all thought it was a good idea to do a campaign, a pure brand campaign that that tells people at a time when Apple is seen as a as a failing company in many people's eyes, how are we going to tell them that really good things are coming? Ground Up, episode 20. Ken Siegel worked as Steve Jobs' creative director for 12 years, first for Amirati on Next Computers, then for Shiat Day on Apple where he and his team created such iconic ads like Think Different, the iPod silhouette ads, who could forget I'm a Mac, I'm a PC. But on the day Siegel first met Steve Jobs in 1989, his heart was beating through his chest. Amirati, who'd hired Siegel as creative director on Next Computers, hadn't involved Jobs in the hiring process. And as Siegel would come to learn in the following years, that was a big deal. And while that first meeting was cordial, Jobs, knowing that Siegel had worked on advertising with Apple during the John Scully years, said, I really love the TV, but the print was shit. Thus began a relationship built on candor and mutual respect, and one of the most prolific agency-client relationships ever. I began our conversation by asking Siegel to take us back to when it all started, to that first day when he met Steve Jobs. They didn't obviously know Steve well enough to know that it would be an issue, but they decided to hire me without having me meet Steve first. And Steve, as I would find out in later years, when I hired people, Steve would want to meet them first. Um, You know, if they were high enough level people. Um, And he resented the fact that the agency didn't consult him before they hired his creative director because he was going to have to work with me and, and how dare they basically. <laughs> so that's what I was dealing with. But, you know, that first day when Steve, um, he came to New York, I think I was on the job about a week or two at the time and it was going to be my first meeting. So I was, you know, the heart was pumping a little. It's like, you know, you're going to meet the president or something. Um, you know, he was this figure in my, my mind. So that was, uh, you know, I, I, I had the job and now I was going to actually meet the man and have to work with him. Um, so yeah, I was nervous, you know, and as I described in the book, I was, you know, walking down the hall there, my heart was pounding, you know, walk in the room and there he is and, you know, bigger than life. And he was so, you know, nice and friendly as we met. Um, you know, I think a lot of what people say about him is, you know, the bad part, the temper tantrums and all that. And, and he really was a genuinely good person and he wouldn't just scream at people for no reason he was you know always had his 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 moments of passion about getting the work as good as it could possibly be and that's why he would get angry when he sensed that things like that weren't going his way but just meeting somebody you know he was perfectly gentlemanly but then of course as as we talked he uh, did tell me that he you know he, he knew i'd worked on apple and he thought that you know part of my work i think it was the tv he said i really loved the tv and the print was really shit <laughs> <laughs> this is when you first met him yeah 
And, and, and I was like, I was and, kind of stunned because he said it all with a smile. And I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, what do I say? Like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> so, I think you said in the book that you said thank you, right? Which you felt was odd afterwards because you just thanked yeah. somebody for telling you that uh, at least part of the work that you had done and, and yeah, his yeah. opinion was shit. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was an eye opener. And, and again, as I point out in the book, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but that sort of set the stage for the, you know, the, all the years to come, because I could always count on Steve to tell me the truth. I never for a moment thought that anything he told me was anything to, you know, to get me to do something or, you know, whatever. I mean, he would just tell me the way things are. I like something or I don't like something. And this is the reason we're doing this. You know, it's, it was all very straightforward. And I thought, you know, when I look back at a number of jobs that I've had, whether it's like with Intel or, Dell or IBM or whoever, um, I always, you know, had some doubts about things. Where do I stand? And, you know, those complicated process driven, complicated worlds. And I did not have that at Apple. It was, you know, Steve made it really easy to work for him as far as knowing where you stand and where you're going. Doing the actual work for him, of course, was a different story because he was never satisfied with anything, you know. Sometimes I always I wonder if people read this in some kind of management handbook or something. I don't think Steve got it that way, but he did have it in his head that, you know, to get people to do the great work, you've got to keep pushing and pushing. And he would always question whether something was good enough from the start. Um, I mean, there were the times where he loved something from the very, very beginning. But I think more often than not, it was, you know, he'd need to be talked into something. He need to understand that you have a passion for it. And you, with all of your experience, you believe this is the right thing to do for A, B, and C reasons. Um, you know, so you had that kind of respect for one another, you know, the qualifications I might have for a job to have an opinion and have those kinds of back and forth. But I always knew where I stood with them. And I thought that was one of the you know most important concepts in making things simpler. And of course, the agency is, is shy at day and, and probably one of the most if not the most famous agency client pairing of all time. You talk about that in the book. I mean, from the launch of, of Macintosh in 1984 uh, to to everything, obviously, from, from your time working with Apple, I mean, I, I guess you'd be hard-pressed to find another agency-client relationship that resulted in more iconic work. And we'll, we'll get into some of the specific ads yeah, and, yeah. And, and campaigns and commercials in a bit, which most everyone listening will recognize. Um, but this was, you know, in, in his time at next, this was your, you know, first, uh, obviously go around working with him and meeting him. Did you feel like from that first time you met him, did you feel like, um, uh, you had to, 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 to earn his respect or, or prove yourself through the work, uh, at, during those first few years working on next? Um, because obviously you came to work with him. Uh, and his return at Apple, Shiat Day, continued to be the agency of record there. So um, did you feel like in your time at Next, you had earned some equity with him and, and uh, respected your opinion and ideas? Yeah, that is the case. I mean, you know, once you settle into a relationship with someone, you know, you don't really think about that anymore. I knew that he had confidence in my work. And I, you know, I, of course, had all the confidence in his work. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we had a good relationship and we'd bring, you know, I'd bring work to him and he would react and he knew that if he didn't like something as much as he wanted to like, you know, we would talk about it and I would come back again with something, you know, based on his comments, you know, improved in one way or another. So, um, 
yeah, I don't think I ever really worried about, you know, having to prove myself to him beyond the beginning months, you know, and, and I think, you know, we hit our stride fairly early on. Uh, I think he's naturally, he was naturally suspicious of pretty much anyone. A new person comes in the room and, and you know, they're, they're, they're in that judgment time where he forms an opinion. Uh, and I can give you a negative example of that. We had um, an account manager, the, the man who was sort of in charge of the relationship uh, that we hired in those early days on uh, after Steve's return to Apple. And to this day, he's one of the smartest guys I know. He's a big shot at uh, Google right now. And I had worked with him previously uh, at another agency, and I had all the confidence uh, in him I could possibly have. And Steve, for some reason, didn't uh, take to this guy. And he would say things to me like, yeah, you got to get rid of him. We can do better. <laughs> and um, I'm like, no, he's really good. You give him a chance. And it got to the point where, you know, he started asking me, you know, how my search is going. And I'm like, you know, we're not quite there yet. We haven't found anyone. And um, and I'm still hoping that this guy is going to redeem himself in Steve's eyes. And we had a meeting one day, and I, I don't have any memory of what the topic was, to be honest. I just remembered this aspect of it, which was there was some confusion in the room, and we were kind of going in a few different directions at once. And this guy sort of took over, and he said, well, here's what I think we should do. And he laid out a very, very clear plan, and Steve took to it. And I thought like, oh, this is great. So we left that meeting, everyone feeling pretty good about things. And in my mind, I'm feeling better about this guy's job security. <laughs> and then um, you know, like the next day, I talked to Steve and he asked me how my search was going again. <laughs> and I, I said, oh, I kind of thought maybe you'd change your mind after yesterday. And it was like, nope, <laughs> I still think we can do better. <laughs> so uh, he actually moved on of his own volition, you know, at that point and, and did um, – you know, get a good job with big agency in New York. And then as I say, moved on to Google. He's been a very successful guy and he's, you know, everyone I know thinks the world of him. So I don't think Steve was right about that one, to be honest, but he formed an opinion early on and it didn't really uh, ever change. And, and uh, there was a lot of examples of that, that, that you talk about in insanely simple or, or some, um, but you know, to, to, to break into the, the, the core value of, of simplicity, you talk about in the book, how, how Steve would often hit things with the quote unquote simple stick, um, and how important this was to Steve's and thus Apple's core values. So, um, do you remember w the first time you experienced that or, um, maybe it's not uh, something that you experience, right? But um, when you sort of learned how how big of core value simplicity was to Steve and to Apple? It's a difficult question to answer, really, because, you know, my feelings about the power of simplicity come from, you know, many different experiences. And, and even at my agency, because uh, I worked at Shiat before the Apple thing as well, um, I actually worked there three times before the Apple time. <laughs> so I was kind of in and out. I was a regular there. And I always thought that they had that value of simplicity um, inside the, their culture. Uh, so the Apple thing sort of reinforced that in a, in a big way because I got the sense early on that Steve just didn't like, um, he didn't like the big company way of working. I think that was one of the earliest things I picked up on is that he saw companies like IBM as being, 
you know, they may have been innovative in their day, but they're just like big, you know, monoliths that, that don't really encourage that kind of you know, creative individuality and all that kind of stuff. And he wanted to make sure Apple was never, you know, would never turn into that. So I think he had a thing about resisting big agency behaviors. And, you know, he didn't he didn't explain all these things by saying it's all about simplicity. That was sort of my interpretation of it. But he he didn't like the way these big companies worked and he wanted to keep the group very small. So, you know, he had, you know, a small number of his people and we'd have a small number of our people and we'd have our regular meetings. Um, and, and in fact, as I told the story in the book too, you, you know, he would throw people out of the meeting when he didn't think they belonged there. Um, he just wanted to keep it. He wanted to make progress and anyone who, who has a real role to play in this decision, they're welcome, but anyone else, no thanks, just another person in the room. And all these things that when you put them all together, you say, you know, he just likes to keep things simple. <laughs> and he certainly was thinking that way with his products. I mean, you know, the central thesis of my book is that Apple, uh, yes, they make simple products, but the reason they do is because this this love of simplicity runs throughout the company. And I think it takes a company that truly believes in simplicity in every way, in its own inter internal organization and processes to make the products that come out in the end simple because it's all, you know, part of the one big, you know, operation. And, and if people believe in the power of simplicity, then that's just the way they think. It changes things. And these bigger companies that I work with did not have that. And they would have their their culture that demanded things be done, you know, five or six times and and analyzed a hundred different ways in different countries and then rethought again. And, you know, it's just like, whoa, <laughs> compared to the way we worked at Apple, it was, uh, it was kind of sheer craziness. And um, as I also came to conclude in later years, these people would do all these complicated things in big companies. Uh, if you ask them why it would be to ensure that we have something that really is great and really works, you know, to the, to the max. But then you can compare what comes out of that process with what came out of Apple's simpler complex uh, process and realize that uh, <laughs> Apple's work was a hell of a lot better. And it didn't go through all that analysis and extra money and more people and all that stuff. So all these things sort of piled on one another to make me realize that Apple's way of working, which was Steve's way of working at the time, um, was just a lot more simpler and a lot more effective um, and cost efficient too, because we had far fewer people in, involved in the process and we got stuff on air much quicker. You know, we get an assignment one day, be back in a week or two with some ideas, get an approval, go out and shoot something. You know, the whole thing could be like a month, um, maybe two if, if it required, you know, more thoughtful planning or something. But, you know, you go to these other big companies, the, the marketing process alone, which was the part that I was involved in, could take, you know, five months or something. And, and it just involved so much of this research and revision and all this stuff that, you know, comparatively speaking, didn't make their work any better than Apple's. In fact, you could easily argue it made it worse. Right. One of the things that, that surprised me was no focus groups, really. Uh, uh, Steve didn't really... Yeah believe in that right whereas you know to compare yeah. ibms the dells of the world like you said would wrap themselves up in that kind of uh process for weeks or, or months so uh, i guess talk about that and 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 no yeah. focus groups on how that worked well it is true and and 
if you talk to creative people in advertising, they would just, you know, <laughs> they would just leap for joy at the idea of having a client who didn't believe in those things. <laughs> Steve, I don't want to misrepresent him because he did believe that we needed to think beyond just our own little sphere of thinking, um, that we might want to talk to some expert or do whatever we need to do. But but he didn't believe in, in what we would do like in, in a Dell or Intel where you set up five different cities and, and you fly there and they have a, a an internal team that does nothing but do this stuff constantly where they you know they they show a commercial and they ask you know 20 questions about it and do you remember this and do you remember that and then they they you know they go off for a couple of weeks and they put together like a 40 page report on what's good and bad about your commercial and then you have to take action on that you know that level of complexity was just like ridiculous Steve Jobs would never do anything like that. And he had it in his head, I think, that, you know, why do I care what a focus group of 20 people in Kansas City has to say about the new iPod ad, you know? Um, And of course, if you're a a marketer who cares about research, you would say, well, you should care plenty about that because you pick up this bit of information and that bit of information. But I think in Steve's head, the general guideline or, every, you know, everyone at Apple, Johnny Ive and, and team was if we make products that we love, um, our customers are going to love them. Like this is the stuff that, that we really want in our lives. And that's our job to you know invent these things that people didn't really think of before. Um, and, you know, there's a great pride that comes with that. And, and you're not going to be wrong very much of the time. Um I guess you could argue a little bit more on the marketing side that that it's a little bit more, you know, opinion oriented. The products themselves, you know, the, you know, no consideration ever of focus groups, because, again, that's Apple's job to come up with these things. Why would we ask anyone? But when it comes to marketing, you have all these opinions. And I used to find it striking because if you're working with Intel, for example, they have a marketing team. And when you present your work. You, you might present to three or four people and all of them are hired because they're highly qualified marketing people. They have this experience. And, you know, it used to strike me as funny that we're presenting to these people who claim to be such experts and they have no problem giving us their guidance that we should do this and we should do that because they're marketing experts. Um, but yet they, you know, if you show five commercials to them, they would have trouble picking one. They would say, well, okay, we'll whittle it down to two and then we'll go into testing. So the difference, you know, on the Apple side was that we'd come in with our five commercials and we'd look at them and Steve would say, I love this one. Um, Or he might pick a different one than we love and then we have the debate, but the meeting would end with some kind of agreement. Um, And if it if we couldn't agree, then it would be like, well, given today's conversation, maybe you should go think about it some more and we'll see you again next week. So that was much simpler. But we didn't you know, we would hit a decision point there very quickly and then go off and produce it. Whereas that was just the beginning of a long process at at Intel, where you would then go off and you'd, you'd test your storyboards and then you go to different cities and different countries and then you'd you'd show them the two sets of ads and which one do you like better for what reason? And that's all part of the the study. You know, it's like kind of like I didn't ever really understand why the people didn't trust themselves if they have such a, a talent. Uh, and, and Steve would have his 
his, um, you know, instinctive reaction to something. But oftentimes, if it came down to an argument and we were passionate enough about our side of the argument, he would say, well, you know, you guys are the experts. So if you're telling me that's that much better, then I guess I'll I'll go with you on this one. Yeah, I mean, he wouldn't do that every single time, but that wasn't an uncommon occurrence to give our our expertise some credibility. And he did say on at least one occasion, I know <laughs> that I'll go with you on this one. But if this doesn't work, you're responsible, <laughs> you know, kind <laughs> of like um, he just, uh, you know, this is your job and you're telling me that this is the way to go uh, and you're supposed to be such a hot creative agency. And, you know, he certainly believed that from the past relationship, then we'll do it your way. But then he, you know, if it didn't work out as well as we wanted it to, then that would become part of our relationship moving forward. He could use that against us. (laughs) So, well, you guys led me astray the time before. So why should I believe you now? So, you know, we were very conscious of, you know, the, relationship as it went along. And there were times when we hit a lot of really good ones in a row. And then there were times when Steve was, I don't know about this. And, you know, last time I wasn't happy and I'm not sure I'm happy about this one. And you talk about it, but I think having a partner you can work with, you know, that there's respect on both sides. um, That's the important thing. And if I could babble for one minute longer. Sure. Um, his relationship with Lee Clow was interesting. Lee Clow was the the creative chief, uh, or more than just creative chief. I think he was the chief chief of of Shia Day for many years. Um, he's the you know he he was responsible with his team for the 1984 commercial. You know he's and he was Steve's friend from those days. And I think um, on that level he uh, had a closer relationship with Steve than I did. I had you know, a really great working relationship. And we had a lot of private time together, just talking about things and everything, but I wasn't like his buddy and Lee was. Um, so he had that kind of respect for Lee. And um, he, he would often say stuff like that, that like, you know, well, you know, Lee is a creative genius. So if he thinks something, we should look into that, you know? So, uh, but my own observation as an outsider the relationship between Steve and Lee was they had this like father son relationship, but they took turns being father and son (laughs) because there were times when, when even though Lee was the older of the two, he sort of let himself get led by, by Steve because Steve could have such a commanding presence. And then there were times when Steve would sort of be in a little humbler mood and, and say, well, you know, Lee's the guy. So, you know, let's go with his, his feeling about it. Yeah, you, so tell, they, a, you tell a good story in the forth. book about Lee where uh, there, there was a specific ad where Steve was sort of, uh, he was insistent on including these uh, four or five points uh, in the ad. And uh, you described Lee in the book as he crumbled up a piece of paper and said, Steve, catch. And he threw it to him and Steve obviously caught it. And then he threw five pieces of paper at him at the same time and said, catch these. And he didn't catch any of them as a way to obviously draw an analogy on why it's always easier to remember one point. So um, I guess that kind of describes the relationship, right? Could many people have gotten away with that sort of demonstration in a meeting? Yeah. You know, it is kind of funny that uh, because outsiders think like, oh, my God, if you say something bad to Steve, he'll kill you. But that wasn't the case. And, And these guys had a very healthy relationship. We all did, I think. So we could criticize 
each other like that and and debates could become loud and even a little angry at times when people you know their passion spills out but steve always respected that in people he didn't he didn't want the um you know the the yes men sitting around it, him he wanted to be able to poke at every you know, decision and make sure we we're going the right way so um honesty with him you know just as i said he gave honesty to me he he wanted our honesty back at him and I think, by the way, I don't think this was in the book, but there were more than a few times when we leave a meeting and and the people who are on my team would come up to me and say, like, oh, my God, I, I can't believe you said that to Steve, like where I made some kind of mocking joke about him or something. And I can never quite understand that. I said, well, why? He's just a guy. He does it to me. I do it to him. You know, just I, I try to <laughs> keep it like normal. But there are people or there were people who would really tiptoe around him. And I don't think he ever liked that. You know, he, I'm sure he wanted to be respected, but he didn't want people to just sort of crumble before him, you know, in a debate. He wanted to, to see what they're made of and if they really believe they're, you know, what they're saying. Um, and, you know, part of that, I suppose, is the ability to just joke with them and, and treat them like, you know, anyone you would normally treat in a business meeting. You know, there's plenty of, humor going around and he actually had a great sense of humor. So, mm. so I want to talk about that period where Steve returned to Apple around 98, obviously the following, I mean, you could still argue that it's ongoing, but the following decade really was one of the most prolific, right. Um, for, for any company. Um, I mean, re reinventing categories, products, I mean, just uh, innovation after innovation. So he returned to Apple in 98, but obviously Apple looked much different than, than it does now. And, and uh, it looked a lot different than when he had left it. And one of the things he had done, you talk about in the book, was he hit the entire product line basically with the simple stick. Um, why? Like, wh wh why, was, uh, why, why so much change immediately upon his return? Well, when he returned, you know, the company was in pretty horrible shape. And I'm not sure how true it was because there's always some exaggeration going on. But many years later, he said that at that time, Apple was 90 days from bankruptcy. And in our meetings in those days, he said, guys, we're going bankrupt here. We don't have time. But, you know, he never put a 90 day, you know, <laughs> limit on it. But things were very, very bleak. And one of the reasons was that Apple made over 20 distinct products. They were all over the place with, you know, Newton and desktops and laptops and printers and scanners and cameras. And all of those things were pretty mediocre. They were entries in a category. It was as if, you know, under the leadership of these of the CEOs who followed Steve, that it was all about having a product in every category or something. So that, that way they'll sell more stuff. And Steve had a very different philosophy, which was, why are, we, why are we doing all these mediocre things when we could just pick a few things and make them like world-class, world-leading products that, that are just beautifully designed and beautifully functional and really, you know, push the human race forward, <laughs> to quote the commercial. Um, so that's what he did. And, and I always thought it was, of all the things that happened at Apple, it is my number one uh, observation of you know, the reason why Apple suddenly not suddenly became successful, but you know, in the scope of history, it was suddenly um, 
instead of having 20 products, I think there were like 26 or something like that. Suddenly they would have only four, the, the home and the pro version of a desktop and a laptop. Obviously, the product line was much simpler in those days. But even today, they don't have 20. Well, they may have 20. I haven't counted lately. But they're in you know, le- legitimate product categories as the technology market has expanded. But that decision in those, in, you know, back in 1998 was what uh, allowed Apple, instead of having R&D on 20 some odd products, they had R&D on four, R&D on four products. And instead of marketing 20 products, they were marketing four products. And the whole world suddenly knew what Apple stood for you know, the best in computers and all that other stuff, you know, forget about it. You buy your printer from someone else like HP. Um, Apple doesn't need to be making laser writers and things like that. Um, And then every employee of Apple knew exactly what the mission of the company was. And, uh, you know, it's that kind of clarity. It's all part of the simplicity thing where everyone involved has a clear vision of where the company is, where it's going, and all the decisions they make can lead in those directions. Um, so I just think that was like the hugely important, you know, decision that Steve made to kill all those other products. And by the way, uh, in the second book, um, I talked to Tom Suter, who is one of the original creative people at Apple, has known Steve since the Apple II days. And he told his story that um, inside Apple, there were like tons of projects going on at that time. So in addition to the 20 products there were probably, you know, like 30 or 40 other new product projects going on. I'm making up a number there, but it was a huge number of, of projects because they're always thinking of new things. And Steve killed all of those as well. He said, I don't want people wasting their time. These are our four products we're going to make. And all effort has to be on making these things terrific, world-changing, eye-opening products. And that decision not only simplified Apple just for obvious reasons, but um, it allowed Apple to charge more money because they were going to make these world-class, world-leading products. And for that, for the design and the simplicity and all the things that would go into those products, they could charge more money. So fast forward to my time working with Dell, that was their forever problem is because they're making commodity computers dealing with all these other PC makers, and they make like no margin on um, on their technology. In fact, There were meetings where we were encouraged to come up with new ways and any companies we could come up with that they can load the bloatware into the PCs because all those people paid Dell to put their software in the PC. So when people start them up, when they buy them, they can go, oh, maybe I should buy that product. So that actually the bloatware was kind of the difference between no no profit for Dell and some profit. But even then, it's nowhere near the profit Apple makes. So. Those guys are all forever jealous of the fact that Apple has enabled itself to make so much profit um, on every item they sell in comparison to what those guys make. And it's all because Apple made this decision, like we're not going to do anything mediocre. We're going to have this incredible design. People will lust after our products. And um, because of that, they'll pay more for them. So. One of the projects we had inside Dell was to do a brand campaign to try to increase the value of the brand so people would be willing to pay more for a Dell. And obviously that campaign never went anywhere because we argued about it for a long time and, and just ended up killing the you know the whole process because there really is no way to um, 
<laughs> to tell people that they should pay an extra $500 to get a Dell computer instead of an HP computer. They're basically the same. You know, they're all these days pretty good if that's the kind of thing you're looking for. But, you know, if Dell raised its prices, people would just say, well, I can get a cheaper one over here because that world is based so largely on price, whereas the Apple world is based on, on beauty and function right. and, and value. Lot, and a lot of that, too, stemmed from – I mean, this speaks to, to Steve's foresight. Uh, when he when he returned, one of the big things you talked about a, a, a rebrand campaign. Um, Apple went through a similar process in in '98 upon his return. Obviously, they kind of revamped the product line or reduced it significantly. But then another big thing that most everyone will remember is Apple branding itself with "Think Different," right? The "Think Different" campaign, which lasted years. Um, uh, you know, the famous commercial, the crazy ones, which we'll get into in a second. Um, but talk about that, um, th- that concept of, of think different and how that really cemented Apple um, differently going into the 2000s. Um, well, one little correction on your timeline there. Think different is something that was born like literally within weeks of us getting the account when Steve moved it over to Shy upon his return. So that preceded um, the 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 killing of all these products and you know the four products moving forward and that kind of a thing. Um, so the the it, it laid the stage, it laid the foundation. I'm sorry, just uh, for for all that stuff that came. Um, looking back at it, some of it was I won't say it's luck because we did a great campaign and I'm proud of it and everybody who worked on it is proud of it, but. Back when things look so bleak, you have no idea how it's going to turn out. So basically, you give it your best shot and you hope for the best. And at that time, all we had to work on was Steve saying, trust me, some really good products are coming. But we didn't see any of them because the iMac wouldn't appear for like eight months after we started the Think Different campaign. So the point of Think Different was uh, Steve had come back to Apple. And because he was Steve um, and there was that kind of... uh, you know, celebrity quality about him coming back to Apple and and Apple has been hurting for so long and, you know, can he save the company? So with all the world's attention on him and Apple, what are we going to do? Because we have no new products to talk about. So we all thought it was a good idea to do a campaign, a pure brand campaign that, that tells people at a time when Apple is seen as a, as a, failing company in many people's eyes. How are we going to tell them that really good things are coming? So the idea was to capture the the essence of Apple in a brand campaign. So uh, and there were a couple of target audiences for that. One were the were younger people who probably never even knew a successful Apple. You know, for them, maybe their technology consciousness just started five or six years before and Apple was always mediocre to them. And and then there were people who uh, used to be big on Apple and then had become disillusioned over the years because they hadn't done anything, you know, really remarkable and and their products were getting, you know, a little mediocre or a lot mediocre, depending on who you talk to. Um, And then there was the the other audience, which is the employees of Apple. So these people had kind of been through all these down years and, you know, the publicity hadn't been great and their spirits were a, a bit broken, you might say. But uh, one of the things Steve told us was that he was really um, pleased because the more he talked to people inside Apple upon his return, he said, you know, I found 
so many people who were, they just believed in this company. And even though they were going through bad times, they really had this belief that, that Apple would be back because it's such an innovative place. And he said, these people are just like waiting to be activated. They, they were so excited that he was back and they were going to become innovators again. And design was going to be such a critical part of it and all the things that he was talking about internally. So Think Different really was just designed to say to all these people, this is who Apple is. And, you know, and when you see basically you know, the unstated message was once you understand this whole thinking different thing, now you're going to be seeing a bunch of products that really follow through on that. And as I like to say to people, you know, after seeding Think Different for at least six months before the iMac came out, iMac was the first really new product that would come out upon Steve's return. There were some new computers before then, but they were kind of just processor upgrades and they were still beige and boxy kind of, you know, power max and things like that. But um, the um, Think Different campaign was such a good uh, foundation so that when when iMac came out and it looked like nothing anybody had ever seen before, it was that, you know, bulbous blue translucent, you can see the guts inside of it. You know, there were no flat screens in those days, so it looks kind of silly by today's standards, but nobody had ever seen anything like that. And you could literally put a photo of that on a page and just write Think Different under it, and it would have made perfect sense. And people probably would have still gone to the stores to buy them. We actually did a little bit more than that, but but that's how good the Think Different campaign was in setting up the things that were to come. And then, as you said, there were a stream of products, starting with the iMac, that didn't look or function like thing like anything anybody had ever seen before. Um, many of them looking kind of silly, looking backwards. But at the time, you know, we all grew up together. And at the time, they looked really, really cool. And it was Apple suddenly who was doing all this stuff and innovating. And the other companies were sort of like, wow, that's a good idea. Maybe we should make one of those. <laughs> so, you know, and then, of course, iPod being another major turning point because at that point apple hadn't really made any kind of consumer electronics there were a few things in the past that never really went anywhere but this was like the the moment when apple became a consumer electronics company as well and would appeal to a whole other you know audience and then use that as sort of you know the the trojan horse you know people pc users loving their ipods and thinking hey i should look at a mac because this company is pretty good and you know all that kind of stuff the way it worked out over the years um i'd like to say it was all planned but it was we we hoped that those things would happen but we had no guarantee that they would happen and we had no real knowledge of exactly what products would be coming other than the fact that steve said they're going to be really great trust me <laughs> so so <laughs> we trusted still, him i can know? still see the ads the think different ads um nelson mandela was on them muhammad ali uh john lennon uh, the, the, i remember on the back of magazines is 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 where a lot yeah. of people remember those ads um, were, uh, well, that, were brilliant. And that's true. I was going to say, we, you know, that was a part of Apple's premium quality. Uh, it, and it was the thing we wanted to make sure everybody got, even by the media placement. So we made that rule pretty early on that we would only put our ads on the back covers of magazines. We didn't want to be surrounded by any, any crappy ads, you know? Um, and people put the magazine down on their coffee table and oftentimes it's upside down and suddenly, you know, you see the ad. 
billboards were another one. You know, all my life, all my advertising life leading up to that, I didn't have a great respect for billboards. It was kind of, you know, you'd often put the junior team on that job or something. And we were buying up um, billboard space in, in all the major cities. But like the really premium things that like, you know, if there's a freeway that kind of goes into the city and right before it goes in, there's, you know, massive billboard, well lit and everything. And we would buy those spaces and you'd put, you know, one of our think different people up on one of those, just a beautiful portrait of, you know, Albert Einstein or something. And it just says think different with an Apple logo on it. And people would be talking about that stuff, you know. Just the fact that these were Apple's heroes, you know, the idea of the campaign, as we used to explain it, was that if you tell somebody who it is that you admire, it says something about you as a person. So this was Apple saying, we admire these people. That's the kind of company we are. Um, and, you know, the, the subtext was that these are the kinds of people we'd like to make computers for, even though they were, you know, long since deceased. <laughs> um, and then we started using live, living people later on. But that was the spirit of the company is that we believed in all these people who did remarkable things in the world. We want to help people, normal, you know, ordinary people do remarkable things. And that's why we make the technology we make. So we were never saying like, you know, if Gandhi were alive today, he'd use a, a Mac. I mean, that would have been crude, but we were just saying, think different, you know, to the world. That's, that's what this company is all about. And we admire these people who have, who, you know, who became, world-changing personalities because of their ability to think different. And, that and while I'm here... The, the commercial as well, right? The, the here's yeah, to the and, crazy ones. Yeah, and just one quick correction on you too. The, the Mandela ad never ran. That was a, one of the stories in my book is that Steve wanted Mandela in the campaign, but we couldn't get Mandela. So, um, but yeah, but yeah, so, yeah, the, the yeah. commercial, uh, everybody will, will remember Richard Dreyfuss uh, narrating the here's to the crazy ones ad. Um, if you look it up on YouTube, it, it has a ton of views, but, uh, it, as a story you tell in the book, there's actually a recording of Steve, uh, at, at, at your agency's sort of suggestion recording that narrative as well. This is true. And, and you can see that one online on YouTube now as well. Um, after Steve passed away, that, uh, got a lot of views. We were of the opinion, um, because Steve loved that commercial. I mean, he thought, you know, the more that was crafted and he would give us his feedback and, you know, as a good client, he would say what he loved about it or, you know, question certain things and we'd keep revising and revising. And, um, he was just in love with that. Uh, and in fact, continued to use it literally 10 years after that commercial ran, I went to one of his new product intros and he started by showing that commercial. I was kind of blown away by that. And um, he just thought it really captured the essence of Apple, that that's what this company was all about, celebrating the lives of, of people who really changed the world. And these are the people we want to make technology for. We just, we just want to empower people to do terrific things and, and improve our lives and to improve the planet. So, you know, you kind of want to be involved with something like that. If you're going to buy a you know, computer, back in those days, it was just basically computers you know, one kind of came with this aura of creativity and, and, you know, just the greatest people in the world think like, you know, they're like Apple people and, you know, whatever thought you wanted to get from these commercials, um, you know, that versus buying some cheapy PC, there was, again, the seeds of Apple, you know, being worth 
paying extra money for. Um, these were the days when all those feelings were were kind of born. So, who wrote that ad? It, that yeah. that that narrative that you hear Richard Dreyfus saying in the commercial. Who wrote that? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I was a co-writer on it. A guy named Rob Siltonen wrote um, wrote as well. So we we share the writing credits on that. And it's funny because there are um, there's a rumor out there. There are always rumors out there that Steve Jobs wrote this commercial, and it's just <laughs> not true at all. He gave us a lot of feedback along the way, but um, yeah, you know, and and it's one of those things. I think every writer in advertising dreams of being able to do like pure brand advertising and not having to end in you know a commercial by saying so. Buy it now today, fifty dollars off. You know, you want to just really be have a you know high quality brand statement. So I've done a number of them in my life, I suppose, but uh, the only one I really remember is this one. I mean, it was one that was very proud to have been involved in. And we had a team of, you know, probably 20 people who it became a labor of love for all of us. Um, and we, you know, we had tried many different voiceovers and, and we had lots of different people that, you know, we were getting the rights for and we couldn't get the rights for this one. Now we got the rights for that one and crafting them together. And, and the music had to be written for the spot. It's an original piece written by our music production guy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it certainly um, was a highlight of my career. For our listeners, go go YouTube that. Uh, I'm sure many of you already can hear it playing in your head. That's how uh, sort of wide – I remember how popular that ad was, and, and, uh, and I've looked it up a few times just for inspiration. But um, if you haven't seen the Here's to the Crazy Ones ad, throw it, uh, look it up on YouTube, and it's a, it's a great spend of a few minutes. Yeah, it, and yeah, and the other thing I didn't touch on that uh, while we're here, the um, the idea of Steve doing the voice. So we said, yeah, I mean, if you love this commercial so much, why don't you be our voice? You know, you're you're the guy who you founded the company. You believe in this stuff. You're so much more believable than just hiring an actor. And um, we argued and argued that one quite a bit. The the very last night uh, when that commercial had to be shipped to Apple so that Steve could have it for a nine o'clock meeting in the morning with his internal marketing, worldwide marketing team. So we had him up till three o'clock in the morning going over different versions of that and trying to sell him on on the one with his own voice. <laughs> and he just wouldn't give on it. Um, he thought there was only one in the batch that that had the kind of stature that he wanted. Um, and that was Richard Dreyfus. And it wasn't his own stature he was worried about. It was just the fact that um, people might think he's just a runaway egomaniac if he has to be the voice of his own commercial. He he didn't want people to be distracted by that kind of debate. He said, let's just get a really good voice and get that commercial out there. And uh, that's the way we ended up going. But his version is pretty darn good. I have to give him credit. It is. Um, naming product naming was another thing that Apple seemed to nail very uh, in, in, a, in a in a very simple way. Uh, all you have to do is look at product pages on Dell and look at product pages on Apple's website, and you'll see how simplified the the naming of the products still are, and and how consistent they are. But you talked about the iMac and how that think different campaign and that that spring of '98 and those first few um, you know ideas that that Steve was working on. You talk about in the book the first time you were you saw the iMac, right? It was under a sheet in a conference room. He lifted the sheet. It was the first time uh, the the agency or, or, or others had seen it, and there was audible just uh, responses in the room. But in terms of the name, it wasn't 
the iMac that we all know yet, right? Um, Steve had his own idea of what he wanted to name it and kind of challenged you guys to do better. Uh, tell that Correct. story because I think that that's a, that's, a, that's a great story. Yeah. And I do think it was Steve's way of operating quite a few times. He would have uh, a direction in his head or a decision and he would say, this is what we're going to go with, but you can beat it. So go ahead and you know, take a week and let me know what you think. Um, lots of product names happen that way, to be honest. Um, iMovie is another one that sticks in my head for some reason. Oh, no, it was Final Cut. Sorry, it all becomes fuzzy over the years. <laughs> Final Cut was a product that had been purchased from, um, I forget the name of the company. But it was purchased by Apple and then it was revamped and there was some feeling internally they needed a new name for it. Uh, and no matter how I tried, Final Cut was a better name. <laughs> so when it finally went to Steve, this is a good example of this simplification. I know I'm getting off track here a bit, but uh, I showed him all these alternate names and then he didn't like any of them. I said, well, I still like Final Cut. What's wrong with that? And he goes, nothing. Who told you to get a new name for it? <laughs> like, <laughs> It's like, oh, well, that's easy. If you like it, I like it. I thought you didn't like it. You know, so that was something that was presented to me by someone below Steve saying, like, well, we bought this product, but obviously we need a new name. And I don't know why that was so obvious. So anyway, uh, but getting back to iMac. Um, yeah, Steve, it was called C1 as a uh, code name in the lab. And we had this meeting we had about two weeks left to name the product. I mean, everything was happening really quickly. I mean, that went from, you know, concept to finished product, shipping product in like, you know, six months, seven months time or something like that. It was outrageously fast. And there, you know, after we got briefed on the product to do like advertising and everything, then it was like, okay, well, but we do need a name for it. So Steve unveiled his big name, which was drum roll Mac man. And, you know, <laughs> We all kind of you know, raised our eyebrows and thought, really? Um, and it was funnier still because he said, well, if you know, definitely try to beat it. But he goes, I, I love it personally. And, and he thought it had that ring of, of um, Sony because they had Walkman and everything. And at that time, remember, Apple was not a consumer electronics company. And he thought having this kind of consumer electronics kind of name would be beneficial for Apple down the, down the line. And I don't know what he was thinking at the time, but I don't think he was thinking of phones and iPads and things like that. He just was leaving his options open. Um, but it was funny because when he briefed us, he, he told us two things to keep in mind. And, and Mac man seemed to violate both of them. One was that even though it had this big handle on the top, it was just it's really, you know, it's designed to have this giant thing on the top. Um, he said, it's not really portable. So uh, it's just there to make it a little bit more convenient if you have to move it to another room, but it's not portable. So the name should not indicate portability. So then we're thinking like, well, Mac man does sound like Walkman, which is like the essence of portability <laughs> back in those days, you know, the music player that you could put in your pocket. And then he said, because it looks kind of frivolous, you know, it looks game-like, we want to make sure that the name doesn't make it sound too gamey because it's a serious computer. It's a, it's a full-powered Mac. And that made us think also, like, well, then what do you see in Mac-Man? Because Mac-Man sounds like Pac-Man, which was at the time one of the most popular video games. So his reasoning made no sense to any of us in the room. And we, you know, we argued it and he was just like, well, you know, if you don't like it, do better. So, so we went back and um, we came back. I, honestly, iMac was one of the first game uh, names I came up with. 
I've always thought it was more a logic uh, issue than a creative issue, um, which depresses me personally because I like to think I'm a creative guy. But the, the concept of that machine was the quick way to the, the easy way to the Internet. Back then, then getting on the Internet was not easy. You'd have to, you know, buy a modem and configure your software and all that stuff. And the iMac automated all of that. You turn it on, give your credit card, and basically you're on the Internet. Um, so uh, iMac, I for Internet, Mac for Macintosh made a lot of sense to me. It was probably one of the first three or four names I wrote down. But then we had to go through hundreds of them, you know, for the exercise and uh, made the presentation to Steve, showed him five names, and he hated all of them, including iMac. So that was kind of shocking because we thought it was a darn good name. So that was our, you know, I, I sort of held that one in the bag till the end. Like, and here's the one we really like after he hated the first four. And he didn't like it either. So, you know, I've always wondered if I showed him in the opposite order, if I, rather than showing him four that he hates, maybe I set him off in this hate direction. <laughs> so <laughs> I, maybe I should have started with the big one. That's always a problem when you make presentations. How do I start? So how did and, he come uh, around? Was MacMan that that made him love MacMan well, even more? Yeah, so he was still on MacMan, and he said, you know, we don't have we're, – we're running out of time. So he said, you guys got another week. That's it. And if you can't come up with something better, it's going to be MacMan. So we came back in a week with more names, and then he didn't like any of those. And then that's when I pulled iMac out again. Um, again, this is a, a conceptual thing about people in advertising. Uh, if someone says they hate something one time, can you ever bring it back or – or does bringing it back open up a wound and, and make the conversation more difficult because you're not listening to me? Um, there's another school of thought that if you believe in something uh, and you come back a second time, yeah, you can show it a second time as long as you have other new things to show as well. So you're not trying to you know force the guy into a decision. So that was what we decided to do. We showed him several new names and he didn't like any of those and said, and then he said, well, um, we still like this one, um, and for this reason and that reason. And at that point, he looked at it and said, uh, I'll, I'll always remember these words, because a lot of it's fuzzy to me over the years, but some some key phrases stick in my head. And at that time, he said, well, I don't hate it this week, but I don't like it either. <laughs> so that's what we had to work with. Um, I don't hate it then, this week, but I don't like it either. Yeah, so then it was like, keep going because now you just got like two days because he said, we got to get the packaging made and you know, the, the factory has got to stencil these names on the machines and all that kind of stuff. So, um, we went to work on it again, but a couple of days later, I talked to somebody inside Apple who said, um, that Steve was showing the name around. He had it, he had it silk screened on a, an iMac model, a C1 model at that point, And he was showing it around internally and getting good reactions to it. And then lo and behold, I mean, there was no, you know, great moment of glory or anything like that. I just hear like, okay, we're going with iMac. So uh, that was how that story ended. Kind Which of, is uh, huge, right? Because yeah. I mean, yeah. iPod, iPad, iPhone. I mean, this was a uh, a, a naming sort of uh, structure that, that stuck, right? Really up until Apple yeah. Watch. Yeah. Um, so again, I, I have to be humble about such things because at the time, uh, when Apple made none of these handheld devices, um, the, you couldn't really see where that might go. Although part of our presentation was that we that is a foundational name, and we knew that there would be a, um, you know, obviously down the line, a, a, a 
portable version of an iMac, and that could be an iThing, like an iBook or something, because they had power books at the time. So that was part of the conversation, but neither we nor Steve really zeroed in on that aspect of it because we weren't thinking along those lines. It was just like, well, here's a computer, and we have these other computers that have names, so are we really looking for something that will last us into the future, you know, that'll take us into the future with all of our product naming? No. So it, it was just one of those things that um, then suddenly we have like the movie software coming out or the photo software. And it's like, oh, well, an iPhoto, because it works on the Mac, on the iMac. And, you know, those things just started to fall into place. And whereas at the beginning, the unwritten rule was that we every product that is connected in some way to the Internet, which is this new idea that's taking root, <laughs> the... Um, we would uh, it, it could have an eye thing at the beginning of it, but if it didn't connect to the internet, then the eye doesn't work because that means internet. But very quickly, the eye, you know, the meaning of internet sort of faded when the internet took everything over because everything's connected to the internet anyway. So I became more of the the consumer product identifier. So you could get your MacBook or your MacBook Pro or this kind of a thing. And and if you want this computer, this is, well, this is an iMac and this is an iPod and an iPhone. These are all of our consumer things. So it became a huge branding element. Um, and again, I, I, I only wish I could say I was smart enough to know that back then, but I'll give myself a little credit. You know, we, we did think it was a foundational name. <laughs> so, yeah, it really was. Uh, but I think that's the way life works largely you know you do the best you can and things take you down new new doors open when you when you go down one path do you remember the first time you saw an ipod um okay the ipod actually came out right after i left um soon enough excuse me not soon enough after i left several months i i had no idea it was coming is my point and i heard suddenly this rumor that apple might be doing that and that raised my eyebrows and i had a music player at the time and um actually I had just bought my second music player the first one i think held one cd's worth of music and i had just bought a brand new one that i think it held two cd's worth of music and i considered a major expansion of my musical uh, playing abilities um, and i just bought that second one one week before they announced the ipod <laughs> And when it came out, I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? Because I just spent like $300 on that music player. Uh, I think I had to throw it away after that because there were all these off brands. You couldn't really resell those things. I don't think, you know, there wasn't even an eBay around at the time, probably. Um, so, yeah, so I just ate that and I moved over to the iPod. But but that, you know, like that moment when Steve killed all those products and zeroed in on four I thought the iPod was the other huge moment in, in Apple's resurrection where it, it became a real consumer electronics company and was suddenly selling to a, a mass market of people far beyond those who would just buy like a, a Mac computer. And from an ad standpoint, you, you tell the story about that uh, th those famous, those iconic Apple silhouette commercials, um, uh, which which came about sort of because of Steve's hesitation about ads with quote-unquote real people in them right and uh yeah. you, you kind of tell the story about how those came about uh, uh, uh do you have anything that you could share there yeah i mean again that was a time when i was not actually creating the advertising myself but i my my people were you know i, I knew people doing it and uh i was getting these stories that they 
we're presenting this campaign with the um, you know the the bright colored backgrounds and the the silhouettes of people dancing and you'd see just the white wires and you know the very iconic thing it was a tough sell with steve i was told because keep in mind that up to that point apple ads were always sophisticated kind of white space beauty shot of the product and um and they didn't have real people in them there was always a feeling like you know once you say this kind of person uses our product you're you know you may be offending people who aren't those kind of people or not appealing to them uh, so it was always more like just make us the cool technology company and and you know all kinds of people can buy our products we won't try to identify a specific look or personality or something and those commer- those ads the print ads and then the, the tv commercials worked the same way um you didn't see the people they were they were sort of the emotional uh sliver of the person's personality you see the you know the silhouette dancing um and then the product you didn't see at all other than the the white shape and the white cords going to the ear so that was a tough thing for steve to follow swallow because um he had an image of apple ads always having this beautiful white space and beautiful product shot and the ipod ads and commercials did neither of those things so it took him a while to get over that but he did get over it. And I think that's one of the good things about Steve as a client also, is even though his instinctive reaction was negative, he he understood the arguments that people were making and they were making those arguments with great passion. And he recognized that he's not the creative person. He's the person who's sort of reacting to the creative. and And these creative experts are telling him that this is going to be really, really good, and it's going to stand out from everything else that's out there. And he ultimately decided, all right, I'll go with you on it. And I'm not sure if I put this in my book. I think I did. But I remember probably three or four years after that, when they were still making those commercials, uh, at one of the, the product intros, I, I went to all of them for many years after I left. And Steve introduced the newest iPod. And, you know, the crowd, 5,000 people, you know, in the auditorium hanging on his every word. And then he said, and we have a new commercial. You want to see it? And, you know, 5,000 people screaming and hooting for it. And he was just standing there with this, you know, beaming, you know, with pride on his face. And I I couldn't help, you know, hearing the stories of the people who told me how much he fought against that campaign, <laughs> which happened often, you know, behind the scenes. It take him a while to get him to sign on to something. Um, but there he was so proud of it, you know, and it was something that he didn't love the first time he saw, but he was, um, you know, open enough to the arguments and ended up running it and being very, very happy, which was also true of the Mac versus PC campaign, which was, I think the greatest campaign is that right. Apple has ever done. Yeah. Cause they didn't and do a he, ton of ads against Microsoft before that, had they? Well, we actually in the old days, and it really dates me to even mention this, but back in the John Scully days, um, we did uh, a campaign called the hard way versus the easy way. And there would be two, two newspaper pages facing each other. And one side would be the Microsoft way. And one side would be the Apple way. And um, not very successful. You know, I'm not sure how many people's minds were changed as a result. It was a very logical presentation. And, um, you know, the Mac versus PC thing struck a chord. They had a great sense of humor. They 
got people talking, you know, every time there was a new one, Oh, did you see the new Apple ad last night? And, you know, they were just really, of all the campaigns they've done, that was one that, that you could literally chart the increase in sales. I mean, it was, it went up, went up from like, you know, 5% to 10% over the span of four years. And you could of course argue whether it was the computers themselves or the ads that were responsible, but in the world of Steve Jobs, it's a combination of both. You got to have great products and you have to have great marketing. So I think um, they were definitely firing on all cylinders in those days. Um, really captured something, you know, the humor always works well. And it was sort of, in certain ways, a little self-deprecating, even as it dumped on Microsoft. It just, you know, made Apple very human. Right. So that was a very good thing. And even though Justin Long had a movie career, he I think that's probably what he's best known for is is the Mac versus PC. I don't know where he's been in the past, I don't know, decade. But uh, he I, I, he's most remembered for those Mac versus PC commercials, which had real people in them. Um, yeah. Do, do you remember hearing stories from from your from your former coworkers about whether or not that was a tough concept to sell to Steve? Well, I yeah, I know it was actually because. Um, I got a little bit involved at, at one point at the very beginning of that. Um, see if I can make this a short story, <laughs> but the idea had been presented to Steve and he really, he liked the idea, but they kept showing him script after script after script and he wasn't buying the scripts. Um, and then um, it was suggested that maybe I could help. At that point I was freelancing inside Apple. So they recruited me. Um, Steve thought that I might be effective because I had worked with IBM previously and that I might have some insights into the IBM way of thinking and that might be able to contribute something to that cause. So, um, I got the assignment like on a, I think it was like on a Friday and they were having their next meeting with Steve on, on Monday. So while I was working on, I was actually writing scripts for those things and, Without really knowing the characters, because I hadn't been told anything about who was playing the characters, or and at that point it was just an idea, so I don't know. Uh, I didn't know they had anyone in mind. Um, but while I was working on scripts, they actually decided that the only the the agency decided the Shiat people that the only way to really get Steve to understand this is to go out and produce a couple of them. So they had the actors. Um, and they, they quick got them in a studio and they, I think they did two, maybe three. Uh, and Monday morning I sent my scripts in, uh, to the agency people, um, doing what I could to help, but they had already these two or three commercials in the can and they, they went to see Steve that morning and, and he loved the spots. You know, once he saw them brought to life, he, he totally bought them. So my scripts never saw the light of day. Basically, that's the end of that story. <laughs> I could have been a contender, um, but it was fun. I remember it was fun writing those scripts, just you know, based on the concept. But you know, agencies are very protective too, and and they would much prefer you know doing their own scripts and whatever. But the emergency that existed, Steve doesn't like this campaign, and we really want him to like it. That went away that Monday morning when he saw the the finished spots. So that was uh, a good thing. And man, we we could continue talking about this stuff for for a whole series, but I want to I want to uh, to wrap on this question because it's something that it's a line from from Insanely Simple, um, where you talk about how people prefer 
simplicity, right? Whether you're a person, a dog, a fish, or an amoeba, you respond more positively to simpler solutions, which sounds really obvious. So Mm -hmm. why is complexity so much easier uh, to, for, for marketers, for, uh, for, for us really, I mean, as, as, as humans, why is it so easy for complexity to creep in to our everyday, whether that's marketing and copywriting or, or, or just mm. meetings. And, and I mean, you can go on right. and on. Why is it so much easier for that? You should write a book about that. that sounds like a good topic. <laughs> um, it, it's a very good question. And I, I have my own pet theory and that is that, um, there are actually two things going on at once. On on one hand, we have what you just quoted me as saying, you know, that everything, every living thing prefers simplicity for themselves, you know, their instinctive reactions to things. And then we have this weird dynamic of what happens when you take a job somewhere, if you're a human being. Um, if you are being paid to, to, to have a talent and a therefore opinions and things like that. If anything is brought to you, what do you think about this? Very few of us are willing to just say, oh, that's fine. Go with it. You know, normally it's kind of like, well, if it was me, I would do this and I would do that and I could make it better by doing this. So I think there's a lot of that that goes on in the business world where people feel sort of compelled to put their fingerprints on something because they're getting paid to, you know, they they need to show that they're worth the money they're being paid. Um, so you get things like that going on, where, where uh, which is why Steve's streamlining of Apple is so important. If you have three or four different you know groups of people who have to approve something, pretty much every level is going to change it and water it down in some way or, or add their own bit of genius to it that may work for them but not for the other guy who just approved the, the previous version. So life gets complicated. And, and in businesses, we have these processes that are put in place normally to to sort of institutionalize success, you know, early on in the company's existence. And then as times change, they start adding more processes, refining processes and putting new processes on their old processes. And suddenly you're like, you know, what has this become? One of the guys I interviewed in my new book uh, is uh, the CEO of uh, one of the biggest banks in Australia. And he he observed that very thing. And he said that um, what he does with his people is he says, we have these products that have become cumbersome over time, these loan packages and things that people get from the bank that have all these kinds of forms and requirements and this and that. So he suggested uh, the idea of swimming upstream. He said, if you swim upstream to find an earlier version of that thing, you're going to find that it was a hell of a lot simpler in those days. And over the years, that stuff has been lost because people have layered all this other stuff on top of it. So he's a he's a big fan of swimming upstream to find the, the simpler version of something that, that actually existed once and has been made more cumbersome over time. Um, so, I, so I think it's part of human nature to make things more complicated, even though it's part of human nature to prefer a simpler solution. So go figure. <laughs> the books are Insanely Simple, The Obsession That Drives Apple's Success. And then uh, his new book, uh, as Ken just referenced, is Think Simple, How Smart Leaders Defeat Complexity. These are two books that as I've said, I've, I've sort of changed my worldview on marketing and copywriting, and, and I couldn't recommend them enough. Ken, thank you so much for all this time and giving us what is essentially an oral history of, 
of of tech as we know it of the past 20 years. This was great. You're very generous with your time. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, John. And as you could tell, I personally can talk about this stuff all day long, too. So it's a good idea to stop me while you can. <laughs> sure thing. I could, too. So for, for our listeners, we'll have to keep them. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.